Well, we're in a brand new series called Core Beliefs of Christianity. These are the non-negotiables. So for you professional Christians, let me tell you what's not a core value. Watching Harry Potter, body piercing, tattoo, or drinking wine. Thank you very much. Let me talk about what really matters and what really counts. And I want to talk to you about grace, a fundamental truth of Christianity that sets it apart from any religion on the face of the earth, and no one can match it. And in about 20 minutes, you're going to be awfully happy you came today. So listen up real carefully. How successful, how tough, how talented, how attractive do you have to be? How do you judge a life? Better, how does God judge a life? Actually, that depends on which church you go to, right? So we'll just ask God how He does it, and it might shock you into deep appreciation. This past week, I've been reading a lot about the amazing life of Steve Jobs. Jobs' level of success was so high, writers had a difficult time finding any standard of comparison. He's been compared to Thomas Edison, Henry Ford. He was a visionary genius who revolutionized at least six different industries. He was a college dropout. He started a company in his garage called Apple. I think when he was about 30 years old, he was publicly fired from it. But his resilience was breathtaking, and he launched a major comeback to take a failing company that had fired him and took it on to brilliance. His legacy includes Mac computers, Apple stores, Pixar studios, iPhone, iPod, iTunes, iPad, iWatch. He changed the way we think about computers and phones and music and movies and retail stores. I mean, this guy made technology cool, elegant, you know, uh, easy to use because I'm using the pad right now. I love you, Steve Jobs, wherever you are. I'm glad there was a Steve Jobs, and I think it's pretty awesome I got to be alive during his lifetime. The New Yorker magazine had a cover tribute to him. You'll see it on a side screen. And it pictures him at the pearly gates in St. Peter checking out the book of life, only the book of life was upgraded to the iPad of life. <laughs> there was a quote in a newspaper that talked about his impact. It said, 10 years ago on this planet, we had Bob Hope, Johnny Cash, and Steve Jobs. Now there's no jobs, no cash, and no hope. He was the inventor or co-inventor on a record 340-plus patents. He changed the world. In the 19th century, the average American dream was that a boy born in a log cabin could grow up to be president. But that's not the American dream now. Now the American dream is a kid starting a company that'll change the world from his parents' garage. And that kid was Steve Jobs and that company, Apple. All of this got me thinking, how successful is successful enough? If Steve Jobs is the standard of success, how well am I doing? How many of you have launched a legendary organization? How many of you have revolutionized at least six different industries? How many of you are worth more than $7 billion? Please stand up. 
How many of you have been named Fortune Magazine CEO of the decade? But I'll tell you a little secret. Some of the best and brightest live under a pressure that just kills them, that just robs them of joy. We've got middle school students today who are living so relentlessly under the pressure of performance, they're now going to therapy when they're only 13 years old. We buy the largest houses we can so we can proclaim our success. Then we overwork ourselves trying to pay our mortgage. Then we overschedule our kids with sports and classes and private lessons and private tutors because we want them to be, you know, accepted into the best schools so they can get the best jobs, get the best pay, get the best 401k. And we think that if our kids aren't the smartest and the best, then we're not successful. So in God's sight, in your sight, how much success is enough success? Uh, Al Davis was a kid from Brooklyn, New York, who became the general manager of the Oakland Raiders when he was only 33 years old. He was the youngest guy in professional football to ever do that, and he was not even a particularly gifted athlete. He did it by sheer tenacity in an occupation full of the toughest people in the world, the NFL. Nobody was tougher than Al Davis. His standard was a commitment to excellence, and the motto of the Raiders under Al Davis was kind of unforgettable, just win, baby. That was his motto, and that motto perfectly described Al Davis. He fought to become an owner of the Raiders, even though he didn't come from a lot of money. He named the first uh, uh, African-American head coach in the NFL. He also named the first Latino head coach in the NFL. He was famous for taking on misfits, renegades, and rebels, people other organizations were not willing to accept. And by sheer will, Al Davis led the Raiders to three Super Bowls. Cowboys could learn something there, maybe. <laughs> Legions of devoted followers across our country call themselves the Raider Nation. When Al Davis was around, nobody questioned who was in charge. A newspaper reported that a new player had asked Davis, who negotiates the contracts for the Raiders? Al Davis responded, young man, I do the hiring, I do the firing, I decide how many wastebaskets we have in this office. Any questions? Davis wouldn't back down from anybody. He sued the NFL to move the Raiders from Oakland to Los Angeles. <laughs> then he sued them again to move from Los Angeles back to Oakland. He was a feisty guy. NFL Films rated the top 10 feuds in the NFL of all time, and most of them were between two teams, like the Bears and the Packers. But the number one feud of all time was between Al Davis and the entire NFL. He could be extraordinarily generous and loyal, but he was not given to tortured self-doubt or false modesty. When New York Yankee boss George Steinbrenner died, Al Davis said at the funeral, I judge sports figures based on individual achievement, team achievement, and contributions to the game. George was right up there with me at number one. <laughs> Quite modest, wasn't he? How do you judge a life? How does God judge a life? How much winning is enough? How much success is enough? How do we compare to Al Davis if he's the standard for winning? How many of you have won three Super Bowls? How many of you are in the Hall of Fame? 
How many of you have set the record for the most Hall of Fame presentations? How many of you have a colossal group of followers around the country that take on your name? How much winning is enough? Roger Williams was the first pianist to have his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He started playing the piano when he was three years old. By the time he was nine, he could play anything by ear. I was thinking, we gave both of our girls piano lessons. I could pay off this church with what we, they can't play chopsticks. And some of you got them too, right? He was a prodigy. He received a scholarship to go to Juilliard. He went on to become the pianist to the presidents. He started with Harry Truman, and he played for nine consecutive presidents. Of all the pianists who have ever lived, he's the only one to have a number one song on the Billboard charts. He's the best-selling pianist of all time. He had 18 gold or platinum records. And not only that, he won a boxing championship in the Navy during World War II. So how talented is talented enough? How do you compare to Roger Williams if he's the standard for talent? How many of you took piano lessons growing up? How many of you have sold millions of records, received gold stars, performed on TV, played for nine presidents, and won a Navy boxing championship? How talented is talented enough? Or how attractive is attractive enough? George Clooney hadn't died yet, but most women think he's to die for. That's not George Clooney. That's Jim Williams. There we go. If you're young and you're physically attractive, people will tell you quite often, you look good. But if you live long enough, you hit a certain stage in life, and then people will add a little phrase. People will say, you look good for your age. Your body now has flab, wrinkles, liver spots, and varicose veins. You look good, not in absolute terms, but in comparison to other deteriorating, rotting, flabbing people. <laughs> so how attractive is attractive enough? How many of you have been named sexiest man, sexiest woman of the year by People Magazine? Yeah, well, we're in a series called Core Beliefs of Christianity, and today, I'm going to talk to you about how we are saved, forgiven, embraced, loved, brought into the family of God, declared to be righteous, and accepted into a relationship with God by grace alone. Not by success, not by talent, not by looks, not by winning. By grace alone. Grace is all over the Bible. Paul wrote these words to the, in a letter to the church at Ephesus. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you were saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of any work, so that no one may boast. And we live in a boasty world. Even in the religious world, everybody brags. How many channels I'm on? How many people did this? How many did that? How many books I sold? Boast, boast, boast. And boy, that's true even in the world. But God says, I'm going to give you a gift that has nothing to do with your performance, everything to do with my grace, so shut up. You can't brag about you've never been drunk, you never committed adultery, you've never done anything wrong. 
you've never been naughty, you don't smoke. I, I mean, God knows what else I could name on there would probably fit most people in this room, but the point is, none of that has anything to do with grace, which makes it so uncomfortable to religious people. Grace has almost been shoved onto the black market of doctrines. Like, don't tell anybody, but I have some grace for you here. <laughs> you're, you're forgiven. God says, I don't remember that. I have no record of that anymore. People, people in churches still live under the dominance of performance. If I'm good enough, if I'm talented, if I'm pretty enough, if I sell enough, if I get the church big enough, if I get this, if I can do this, if I can stay married, if I cannot commit adultery, if I can just get off drugs, if I can, if, 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 and if a bullfrog had wings, he wouldn't bounce his bottom, right? If, if, if. But this is the culture you live in. And it's even dominant in Christianity. But the core belief of Christianity, one of them, is this amazing grace. We think we earned what we have. We think we are the reason we're so successful, talented, or beautiful. And let's face it, one of the babies in the book of Luke in the first chapter was named Theophilus. What a name! I, I, you know why? I think it's the awfulest looking kid they had ever seen, and they just said, Theophilus. I don't know. All babies look a little bit ugly when they first come out. Yeah, I don't care what you say. I mean, I don't think anybody, every, I don't think anybody walked up and looked at your kid for the first moment and said, what a stunner you are. I don't think so. But they get that way. But the point was, you didn't have a thing to do with that, that kind of shape, DNA that you inherited, uh, the family you came from, uh, the genetics you picked up. You didn't have anything to do with that. And, and, and someone that was deficient in that area had nothing to do with that. The fact that you, sometimes even in a family, they'll have one child that's got an amazing IQ. They didn't have anything to do with that. Born that was a gift of God. We'd be great. We ought to be grateful. We we have life, breath. We can do anything. That everything can move and and operate. But I'm trying to show you that you didn't get to choose your eye color. You you know the this. Well, you, some of you are choosing your size by what you eat. But but I'm saying generally, generally that that we're born. Well, some people are shorter. Some people are taller. Some people have genetics and hair and and whatever. I got thick eye. I could I could be a hair donor with my eyebrows. They're kind of Russian, and people think I'm mean because they see that. I was in a, I was getting a trim the other day, and somebody had asked the, the lady that was doing the trim on me, she said, is he nice? Is he friendly? Is he funny? Is he approachable? Like I thought, well, yes, I am. I'm funny, and I'm kind, and I'm, I'm, I'm totally open. What you see is what you get. In fact, I might be a little more transparent offstage here, but not much different and certainly approachable and nice. I don't know what their image of some preacher is, but it must suck because this is, this is, this is real life. These guys in the Bible were real life. They didn't put a little boutonniere in their little tucks and have little talks. I mean, these are pretty raunchy, raw kind of characters. Peter's walking with Jesus for three years, the Son of God, watching him raise the dead and all, and he's still cussing. You want to put him on your dash? Thank you. 
I think I'd rather pray to my uh, mother-in-law or something than some of these guys. They're rough. They're just rough people like us. So we think we're the reason we're so successful, talented, or beautiful. But Paul says we're saved by grace. All that we have is because of God's grace. The old definition of grace is called unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. I mean, you didn't deserve it. You've earned nothing, so no one can brag. Nobody can boast. The ancient Greeks used the word grace, unmerited favor, when a strong person helps someone who was weak, needy, or dependent. And the weak person couldn't succeed on his own. That was grace. Grace is God's choice to love, forgive, embrace, accept, and help us when we've done nothing to earn it. Because, see, you still believe, I- I've got to deserve it. I've got to earn it. I- 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 oh, I didn't go to church this week. Oh, I didn't do this. Oh, uh, morally I had this problem or something. And so, you, on the chart, on God's clipboard, you got, a, you got a red mark for the day. I mean, I came out of that legalism non-stuff, but I'm going to show you in just a second. This is not the kingdom of God at all. God chose to love me in spite of me, not because of me. If it was because of me, I'm in bad shape, and you are too. I don't see anybody glowing in the dark sitting out in front of me. None of you are going to be a little Christian nightlight, I can tell you that. If grace came to us, it would say, hey, stop. You don't have to be any more successful than you are right now. You don't have to win any more than you've already won. You don't have to be any more talented. You don't have to look better than you do. All of these things are gifts of grace from God. So you can't brag about them. Now, it's not wrong or bad to succeed or to win, for crying out loud. It's not bad to be smart or talented. Something would be wrong with you if you didn't want to achieve. God can use those things that He gave you for His glory. They just won't save you. That's all. Grace would say, the person who hungers for those things to make them fulfilled and happy is idolatry because you want that to determine your level of happiness. Trying to be good enough causes you to overwork. Then you neglect maybe your health, your family. You fail to see the gift of the moment. You're so focused on yourself, you don't pray. You want to serve yourself rather than the kingdom. You don't have a generous heart. The old alternative grace the Bible talks about is salvation by works. I can be good enough. I can merit salvation by my own effort. Even people who don't believe in God believe in some form of salvation by what they do. Oh, he was a nice person. Oh, he was a good person. You know what Scripture says about all my good works? They are filthy rags. So I'm sure not going to hold them up to say, Lord, would you consider this as you consider me? this is, this is going to be so easy. I often wondered why it was called good news when every time I went to church it was bad news. I never could figure that out. And I said, how come all the bad people like Jesus and all the good people hate the Jesus that's preached in the Bible and all the bad people stay away from church? 
I never could figure that out until I figured out, well, we didn't preach what Jesus preached. That's why. We, did, we, we still preach achievement. We're like the publican. He came out there on stage in front of the temple and said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like uh, Bill over there. He's an adulterer, pornographer. He's got a drug problem. He's been married twice. He, I think he's fooling around right now. Uh, I thank you. I tithe. I, I don't smoke. I come to church every week. Blah, 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 blah. And then this old poor bad guy over here, he just knelt down struck himself in the breast and bowed his head and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I stink. Have mercy on me. And then Jesus, all these religious people, he said, which one of these guys went home justified? And then pointed to the bad guy. See, it was all by grace. The Pharisees wanted to deserve it, wanted to earn it. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't, and I never have, and I never will, and I don't, and I don't, and I don't. And this guy just dropped dead and said, I'm guilty as a snake. Have mercy on me. I stink. God said, good. That's all I wanted to hear. Good. And by grace, you're forgiven. By grace, you'll be with me. By grace. Because I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you why in just a second. So we all want to be saved. We all want to be free. We all need it. We all know it. And that sense will never go away. And our culture is redefining what salvation means. Now it's largely economic or therapeutic. Salvation will come if we're successful enough, talented enough, then we'll be happy enough, we kind of think. But we still have that sense gnawing inside of everybody working, working, working. I'm not there yet, so keep running. Keep trying harder. Climb higher. Push your kids a little bit more. But grace would shout right in our face, stop it. You cannot be successful enough. You cannot be talented enough, smart enough, tough enough, or good enough ever. Grace is good, but it's not soft. Uh, The old song, Amazing Grace, was written by John Newton. Uh, One of the lines in the song says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. He was a slave trader, a wicked guy that lived a terrible life. But in the end, he found grace. He was then able to say, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. I think grace would say, pay attention to the uneasiness you have about not feeling good enough. You can't relieve yourself of that feeling by accomplishment or achievement or having a strong will or going to the gym more. You need God. You need to be saved from what sin has done to you and what it's doing to your soul. So sin's messed up who we are as individuals, all of us. It's ruined our relationship to the universe and our relationship with God. I've got, uh, several years ago, I had friends in California that had a daughter named Shauna, a strong-willed child. She's about four years old. She tried to ride her tricycle where she was not allowed to ride her tricycle. Her mom got so frustrated one day, she went out to the front yard and said, Shauna, look here. Here's a tree. Here's the edge of the driveway. Here's our sidewalk. You may drive your tricycle between the tree and the driveway, but you cannot take it beyond that. If you take it beyond those boundaries, I will spank you. And I'm going back inside the house, but I've got a big picture window right there, and I'm going to watch you. And if you ride beyond those boundaries, I'm going to come out there, and there's going to be a spanking. And little four-year-old Shauna was not intimidated. She stuck out her little hip, pointed to it, and said, well, you better spank me now because I got places to go. (laughs) I, I thought, boy, that's a picture of the human heart. That's a picture of the human condition. 
The human will is corrupt. The human will is turned from God. The Bible says we all go astray from our mother's womb. Boy, that's so true. Our hearts are corrupt. But here's the problem. Because corruption is universal, because it affects every person, like aging and deterioration, we get used to it. We just get used to it, whether it's injustice, poverty, racism, violence, abuse, apathy. We get used to it. We're around it all the time, and it's in all of us. But God never gets used to it. It never looks good to Him. He never looks at a broken and corrupt world and says, well, gee, this is the 21st century. I guess that's okay. He never does. Grace doesn't do it. God's standard is sinless purity. That's His very nature. I don't measure up to that. I want to read a list of words, and this is just private, but see if any of these characterize you. Prideful, judgmental, cold-hearted, apathetic towards the poor, greedy, envious, lustful, unfaithful, deceitful, promise breaker, secretly cruel, cowardly, stubborn, self-centered, careless, joycelessness, complaining, loveless. See, God says spiritual sanity begins with this recognition, God, something is broken inside of me, and I can't fix it. I have defied you and your ways. Now, grace actually came to earth one day. The Gospel of John says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law kills. Funny thing about the law, Paul talks about it in Galatians a lot. He says, for you legalists, if you're going to keep one part of the law, you got to keep it all. But no legalist does. And if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of having broken it all. You're just up the creek with no paddle. But that's what God wants you to see. You are up the creek. You cannot keep a perfect law. You cannot. Keep trying. You cannot. Ever. And so, he says, I'll give you an alternative choice called grace. So, grace comes through Jesus Christ. All the law does is make you guilty and kill. The wages of sin is death. But God comes with grace and mercy and truth to give life. So, here's what Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But we are all justified by His grace as a gift. Anybody ever get a gift? No, I guess not. Okay. (laughs) A real gift is something somebody gives you. They paid for it. They offered it to you. You didn't earn it, deserve it. Maybe you didn't even ask for it. But somebody bought something, offered it to you, and you said, thank you. That's a gift. And that's what salvation is. It's a gift. All have sinned and come short of the glory. Well, I haven't done that. I haven't done. It's like going to the morgue and saying there's three people dead there. One of them's been dead three minutes. One's been dead three months. And one's been dead three years. Who's the deadest? (laughs) Stupid. They're all dead. If you've sinned once, you're a sinner. You've all come short. That's it. God's standard is perfection, and only Jesus Christ was able to live a sinless life. I fell short. I got no prayer, no chance, no hope. 
So he says, all have sinned and come short of God's glory, but we are now justified by His grace as a gift of God. So by grace, we are declared to be forgiven. We are embraced. We are accepted into the family of God freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So God says, Grace would say to me today, you can have the acceptance, forgiveness, and love you crave no matter who you are, no matter where you've been. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trusting in your own works, your own accomplishment, your own morality, and yourself. Just humble yourself and receive God's grace like a gift, like a child. You know, I've got two little grandchildren, and then we raised two girls. Anytime we gave them a gift, they just snatch it. And grab it and run. Our grandchildren the same way. Now, when you get up to be adults, they say, oh, oh, no, I couldn't accept that. Oh, no, no, no. Now, they want it, but they'll say, oh, no, no, I, I haven't earned it. I haven't done anything to, to, to do it. But kids, they don't have that. You offer them anything, yep, that's it, yep, they grabbed it. And so, salvation is offered as a gift, yet we want to perform and earn it, and yet we never can. So, he says, I want to invite you to check out of the culture of performance. Step into a world of grace. When you wake up in the morning, give yourself to grace. When you go to bed at night, give yourself to grace. When you have a challenge, rely on grace. When you mess up, turn to grace. You can't get grace under law. You get death. You can only get grace from Jesus. He's the one that shows the mercy. When you have a challenge, rely on grace. Now, here's the deal. You can understand that. You can believe in God. You can affirm this and still not be a follower of Jesus. So, have you responded to grace? You know, all you have to do is acknowledge your sin and say, God, I confess to you, uh, boy, I am broken. I've done wrong. I can't fix it. I want to be forgiven. I want to be loved. I'm going to stop comparing myself to other sinners. I can never be good enough. I can never give enough. I can acknowledge Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sin, my pride, my selfishness, my bigotry, my hate, and all the darkness in me. I recognize He paid the debt I could never pay, so He died a death I should have died. I want to receive Your forgiveness, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me, and I receive that free gift of grace by my little simple faith. I surrender to You. And you get this as a free gift. Now, let me close and picture a little deal like this. The law puts you in a court. The law is performance. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Have I succeeded enough? Am I winning enough? So I'm in a court, and I'm going to perform to get a verdict. And I want the verdict to be, you're accepted. But you never, ever get a verdict off of performance. Here's another option. I'm guilty. I go to the court. The judge says, you are guilty. You have sinned. You deserve punishment. You deserve death. You deserve hell. Yep, I do. And somebody else acquits me. Jesus is that mediator who comes in and says, I alone can atone for his sin. I will choose to pay for Rick's sin, and that sin is death. I will therefore go to the cross, be executed, take the full judgment of God because He's righteous, and full justice will be poured out on me, and I will die His death, 
and then He was raised from the dead. Now here's the deal. When that happens, picture a judge, you know, slamming his gavel down saying, case dismissed. Court is now out of session. It's closed. Why? The verdict has been rendered, the price has been paid, and I get a full pardon. I'm justified, I'm redeemed, I'm accepted, I'm free. There is no courtroom for me once I become a believer in Jesus. Court has already been adjourned because judgment has already been paid. I can never pay for it a day in my life. On a good day, I can't pay anything. I'm free. But as long as you're striving and trying to achieve and earn salvation, you never know, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Am I moral enough? You never know. In fact, I got a text early this morning from one of our members, Ken Rodriguez and Judy. They said after the church last night, they went home and watched a documentary uh, on Ali, a tribute to Muhammad Ali, one of the great boxers who changed forever uh, that whole boxing world. He was unique and different. But a reporter asked his wife why he was signing autographs so long and doing so many good things with severely advanced Parkinson's. And she said on television, he's trying to get to heaven. And I thought, this is the condition of man who doesn't understand grace. Grace is something that someone else has already paid for. You can never pay for. If I'm a sinner, how can I ever pay? I'm guilty forever, and I'll never know, have I done enough? So uh, we got people out there that are going to pray five times this way, this way, this way on a rug. We got others counting beads. We've got others with ash on their head. We got others say, I'll eat fish on Friday. What am I doing? I'm going to achieve somehow acceptance from Daddy God who will love me now and take me in. I just hope when that last day comes, I've done enough. How would you like to just get out of the courtroom? The judge said, case dismissed. Your fine has been paid. Somebody else took your place. You will never be judged a day in your life, ever. Romans 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ, unless you go to church. I know I was raised in one of those guilt-driven churches, and I'm trying to say to you, no, no, no. God will chastise me, never judge me. The judgment requires death. Well, Jesus took my place, so I'll never be judged. That payment has been paid past, present, and future forever. I'll never pay a day. So I can enjoy life. And and I'm not doing something to earn God's approval. I'm doing it because it brings joy to me. If I want to give some money, it gives joy to me to help someone else. But it's not so God will say, oh, you're virtuous and kind and generous, therefore I will accept you. Nonsense. Don't help people so I earn God's approval. I'm free now to just perform out of love, out of the joy it brings me, out of helping other people, because I'm free. There's no courtroom. You get under the law, you're back in the courtroom. And you never get a verdict because you never know, and you're just driven by guilt and shame. So there's no guilt, no shame, and no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Court has been adjourned. Your case has been dismissed. How cool is that? That is just what's called good news, huh? And when you give your heart to God, you receive forgiveness and love as a free gift of grace. All you do is say yes. You surrender. You just need to say, God, I'm giving my life to you, and I'm going to walk in your grace every single day. 
Some of you have never done that. You're thinking your sin is too horrific to be forgiven. And I'm telling you, there's no sin that grace cannot cover. Forgiveness comes to us through, by Jesus alone. And here's what he says, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. So what are you trying to atone for? Well, I'm going to beat myself. I'm going to beat myself. There's groups that do that. Then at Easter, they nail themselves to crosses in the Philippines. They just blood and beat. Oh, somehow I'm getting God's approval. Or I'm not going to eat this for a week, and this will make me holy before God. I can eat pig fat today, pork. I can eat the grossest chocolate-covered roaches today. I'm as holy today as I'll ever be in my whole life because I have been made righteous, made holy by Jesus' work at the cross. And that's all God can see. That's it. I am covered in the blood of Jesus. I have been vindicated. I'm a son of the Most High God. There's never a condemnation on any day in my life, so I don't feel like I'm performing. So when I don't measure up, I don't get, I won't let the enemy put guilt, shame, and condemnation on me. It's already been paid for. And so this is something that really helps you enjoy life and be free. Religious is not supposed to be bondage. It's supposed to be liberating. Christianity is not religion. It's a relationship with a Savior who says, hey, this, if you read it, he just did life cool. He's just great to be around. And he just, he messed, he messed up everybody, even his own family. Even his, I've often wondered if he showed up today in American Christianity, he'd blow the roof off of it. They couldn't handle him. He's just too wild and unpredictable, and he's just too good to bad people, and I'm one of them, bad people. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. You think you are good, and God says, you are a sinner. You're born with a nature. I've got Labrador puppies, and Cindy and I have raised many Labradors, and when you put a Labrador puppy or a retriever in the water, that little sucker just goes. That God put that motor in him. He, 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 he's, not a, he's not a retriever because he retrieves. He retrieves because he's a retriever. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. It just comes natural. And you got, if you've got babies, you already know. Little sucker, he's just already lying to you right there. You didn't have a seminar on how to lie, how to deceive. Nothing wrong with him. He just wanted you to get out of bed, come in there and pick him up. He wasn't hungry, wasn't wet lied. It's, it's the very nature of all of us. And we just get older and better at it. But the point is, I need a redeemer, a forgiver. And it's not religion I need, it's just Jesus I need. And I'm, I'm taking that free gift. I've been in that gift for 40 years. It's the great best news I ever heard in my whole world. And we could have millions of people in churches if we heard a gospel that preached no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.